Well, happy Mom's Day to all the moms and mom figures out there. Hey, we know that it is tough to be a mom. Uh, when I became a dad and I started watching my kids and, you know, just grow up and do all the things, I, man, my respect and my sympathy for my mama went way up at that point. So, and I got good kids, but we know that it's tough to raise those little ones. You try to guard them and protect them from all this stuff in the world. You watch them grow up and then you send them out and the mama's heart just never stops caring for the kids and watching over them. And so just another round of applause for our mamas, right? Because moms, we need you. (laughs) And I've been grateful, not just to my mama, but also those mom figures in my life. And uh, man, where would we be without you? Well, we're in a series called Revealed. And in this series, we've been taking a look at the book of Revelation. And we're closing in on the end of that, but so far in the book, we have seen Jesus seated on the throne room of heaven. We have seen uh, Jesus' uh, encouragement and his words to the churches of that time to stay faithful and true. And we have seen that there is an evil that is pervasive in this world, and things are bad, and they only continue to get worse. And so here we are at the halfway point of the book, but nearing the end of our series. And and oftentimes, when people come to the book of Revelation, they understandably look at Revelation as the end of times and the final coming of Jesus. That becomes the focus, and that's understandable. But here in the middle of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John does something different with the writing. He rockets us backwards to the first coming of Jesus, and to a Christmas moment. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 12. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That's depicting Israel, God's people, through all time. And she was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. And every mama in the room said, John, you have no clue. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. Now that is a messianic prophecy of jesus this is jesus being depicted here and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to god and to his throne so john rockets us back and he takes us on this incredibly concise journey through the christmas message and we see this picture of jesus right there and then we see that jesus is In this scenario, he's hated not just by King Herod. It's not only King Herod who's coming after him, trying to kill him, but it's the dragon. And later we read in this passage that the dragon himself is Satan. So Satan is right there in the manger, coming after the baby to devour him, to wage war against him. But he doesn't succeed. And so then John tells this very brief picture of the Christmas story, and then takes us back to where we are in Revelation with Jesus seated on the throne of heaven. And, And John tells this story. It's concise, I think, as you can tell the Christmas story. There was a woman who gave birth. He's the Savior. Oh, now he's in heaven. That's about as quickly as you can tell the Christmas story. But we see in this picture 
that there's this evil that's pervasive, it's coming in. But John gives us the picture not just from this earthly perspective. We look back at the Gospels of Matthew or Luke, we get this earthly picture, right? Shepherds and a manger and animals and all that going on. But John unveils what's going on at a cosmic level. That this cosmic chaos and confrontation between good and evil in the spiritual realm. And that's what we see taking place here. You know, for our photo booth today for the moms. We, we have a, a little photo booth on your way out. You can get a picture out there with your family. I, I suggested to the team that in light of the passage that we're on today, we use a big red scary dragon as the backdrop for the picture. The team thought flowers would be better. Aren't you glad I'm not the one in charge of the pictures? So here we have this picture that Satan is coming after Jesus, but he fails. And then he chases after the woman But he fails there too, and he's not done though. His hostility knows no end, and so the dragon is still on the loose. And look at what happens next. The dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children and all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. That's the church. That's us. The dragon is out to get us. He's coming after us. And so the dragon just doesn't stop. The dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Now, there's someone in my family, to remain nameless at this point, who's not a huge fan of going to the ocean or really any large body of water. Because when you go to big bodies of water like that, you, you can't quite see what's in there. Right? It's murky, it's dark, waves crashing in. And so he's like, yeah, hey, you know, he get, I, did I just give him up and I say he? Oops. Yep. Anyway, I'm going to get in trouble as a dad later. Um, and it's Mother's Day, so I'm still going to be in trouble, all right? All right. So the little guy, though, he like looks at it, and it's like, man, I just, I don't love going in the water. Because there's stuff that lives in there. I've seen pictures of it. Snakes. Where are the snakes? I don't know. You can't see it because the water's dark. What about those pinchy things and crabs and other stuff crawling around your feet? What about them? I can't see them. What about those, like, archaic dinosaur-looking fish with, like, fangs on them and teeth? What about the sharks? And they can come into fresh water now. So I, I'm just not a fan of going in the water, he says. And I get that. And that's kind of the perspective that the early church had, that the community of people at that time in history had a couple thousand years ago because the sea was depicted as a center of violence and chaos, of evil, danger, uncertainty. It was all the problems. I mean, when they were talking about things that went wrong, oftentimes they would depict it with the sea. So this dragon is standing on the shore of the sea, and then look what happens. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. It seems fitting. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, and written on each head were the names that blasphemed God. And we see this picture of this beast. And the beast, like the dragon, is pictured in a mockery, a parody an imitation, a gross imitation of how the lamb was pictured earlier in Revelation. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, when we come to that, every tribe and people, language, nation, that's all people all over the earth, symbolizing the entirety of the earth, all people everywhere. And so the beast rule over them. And all the people who belong to this world worshipped the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered. And that book was written before the world was made. 
And so we see this picture of this beast. Now in chapter 14, we would encounter that this isn't the end of the story, that God's good eternal gospel goes out to every tribe, nation, people, and language, offering them rescue from the beast, bringing them back, offering to help them out. There is rescue in the lamb. There's rescue in the good news. But John continues here. It says, then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. Oh, fantastic, because one beast isn't enough. Ah, let's have another one. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belong to this world. Now, at that culture, at that time, beasts were depicted as symbolizing evil empires, oppressive empires, nasty emperors, worldly rulers who took advantage of people, oppressed them, and and were just nasty people. And and so we have these these images of a dragon, a beast, and another beast, and it all kind of plays together. And, And so we have this beastly imagery. Now, now this is the same imagery that we would have seen throughout the Bible. If we look back in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, just one of them, who depicted the worldly empires of his time as beastly, that the beast in Daniel's vision was undoubtedly Babylon. It was the Babylonian Empire. And, And here, writing to these believers in the first century in the Roman Empire, the Christians at that time would have seen these beasts as depicting the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor specifically, but also as godless countries, godless nations in general. So we have these three images. We have the dragon who we're told is Satan himself, and he is the source of evil. He is the mastermind behind all the evil that's happening. Then we see the beast, and the first beast depicted as the military, a militarily oppressive nation of Rome, a nation that would oppose or oppress its own people, exploit them economically with unjust economic practices and military force. And then we see the second beast, which is the propaganda machine that props up the Roman Empire. What we have going on in the, in the world of that time is you have these Roman dictators who would rule and demand to be worshipped as God. Having temples built around the empire to worship them. And people would line up waiting to be the next one to build the next temple for the Roman emperor. Because then they would be in good with the emperor. But they would also get money from that as well. They would use these things. And and they would oppress people. They would charge money there. And they would rule harshly over these people for these little temples to worship the emperor. And, And so this all makes a mockery of God and of God's temples. And as this unfolds, we see the bigger picture. That the bigger picture is that whenever an earthly kingdom, whenever an earthly empire elevates its own status, whenever an earthly kingdom elevates its own military power and economic power and forces people to follow it with unwavering loyalty and complete allegiance, that empire will become beastly. It is the beast. That's what we see with Daniel's vision. That Babylon was the beastly nation. And immediately after Babylon was Persia, a beastly nation. And then we find Greece, a beastly nation. And then the Roman Empire for John's time was beastly. So the Roman emperor isn't the only fulfillment of the vision. He's just the most recent one for the audience at that time. But we fast forward a couple thousand years, and we think just to our time, just to recent history, 
And, and we would put em- empires in this. And we would put certain rulers here. Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mussolini, Kim Jong-un, Idi Amin, Kony, Bin Laden. The list would go on and on. And it doesn't have to just be the most evil ones you can think of. Because any nation that oppresses its people, any nation that uses unjust economic practices or leverages its military to oppress others is seen, depicted here, as beastly. What we see is, as we get this idea, the beast is any and every nation that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. I think there's a slide for that. (laughs) The beast symbolizes any and every nation that exalts itself above Christ. So there's a warning here for us. Just like Jesus had given a warning to the early churches in chapters 2 and 3, he gives a warning to us through that. Be careful where we declare our allegiance. Be careful who we follow. Be careful where we're following them. Roman citizens at that time were proud of their empire. They were proud of what the nation had, had accomplished. Listen, Rome accomplished so much. We still today will look back to look at their political workings, their democracy and and what they did there. We we look back to their science. We look back to their mathematics. We look back to the accomplishments of Rome still today to learn from them. Rome accomplished a lot. And Roman citizens were proud of their country. They were proud to be Roman. They were the nation. And even some Christians in the Roman Empire had begun compromising their faith to avoid persecution. Because the Roman emperors didn't like the Christians. They were throwing them in jail. They were stealing away their livelihood. They were torturing them. They were killing them. And so you had some of these Roman Christians who began to compromise their faith and to blend in a little bit more and to declare allegiance to Rome. And they were actually pretty proud to be Roman citizens. But what we see John doing here is John depicts this nation of Rome that as good as it was in some ways because it set itself up against God and opposed Jesus, it was a grotesque, evil, beastly nation. So there's a warning in this for us. The warning is that we can never blindly give any earthly nation our total unwavering allegiance. We can never just blindly declare allegiance to any earthly nation because the way of any earthly nation is to eventually become beastly. And it doesn't always take very long. We as believers have to remember, as Scripture tells us again and again, that our citizenship is in heaven first, foremost, and always. And that this world is not our home. This is not the place where we will reside forever. So I'm going to be honest with you. I live with tension here. I just want to pull back the veil and, and let you into my heart. This, this is a tension for me because I'm an American citizen. And I'm grateful to be an American citizen. Is America perfect? No. Do we have a totally spotless track record? Not by a long shot. Have we done some things wrong? Mm-hmm. But have we gotten a lot right along the way too? Yeah. Are we on the right trajectory? Are things getting better? Are we about fixing things and helping people and doing the right things? More and more and more. And, and, and I think it's pretty good. Are there, are there things wrong with that? Sure there are. But if I got to choose any place to live at any time in history, I'm glad, I'm grateful that I was born as an American citizen at the time that I was born to this country. But... I also have to hold that intention. 
that, that while I am grateful for those who have granted and guarded my American freedoms, some of them are very close family members, some of them are some of my best friends. I have to hold in tension this bigger picture that the United States is not synonymous with the kingdom of God. Now, now that's not an anti-American statement. That's not a dig on the U.S. That's simply saying that the kingdom of God is so much grander and greater and better and more beautiful and eternal that that's where my citizenry lies, that that's the big picture, that that's the focus, and i got to be careful not to confuse those two. That's just a biblical truth. As good as America is, when we compare it to the kingdom of God, it's like living under trash can. This is a pretty good place to be. And so that's not saying this is a, a bad thing. That's saying how much greater is the kingdom of God. And so that's what we have to look forward to. If we put our hope, our trust, our allegiance in Jesus, man, this is like living in a dump in this world compared to what is to come and the life on the other side of the grave for those whose hope is in Jesus. That's a good thing. But listen, the enemy is still alive. The dragon still stalks. He still is on the lookout. He still is on the loose. And he doesn't want us to hear this message. He doesn't want us to focus on the kingdom of God. Listen, our job as Christians is to bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed. That's what he encouraged us to pray. When the dragon doesn't want that. So the dragon, he is the great deceiver. He's the father of lies. He is the supreme smack talker. And so he's just going to fill us with lies. And he's going to fill us with lies. Listen, if he can't slay us, and he's going to try, he's going to try and take us out of the game by just breaking us down, telling you that you're no good, telling you that your sins are too great, that Jesus can't forgive you, that you're too big of a sinner, God doesn't love you, God's angry with you, God hates you. He's going to fill you with all those lies from the very pit of hell. And that's what they are. All that stuff is untrue. But if he can't get you to believe that, then he's just going to sneak in a different way and just try to seduce you. Get you to think this world is all it is. Maybe this country is all that it is. Maybe you're just going to try and get you to think, hey, you know, listen, all religions, they kind of lead to the same place. God just wants you to be true to yourself. He just wants you to follow your own heart. God just wants you to be happy. He's just going to try and seduce you and to think that, Listen, you're good enough. You, you can earn your way to heaven. You just, you, you, you take care of a couple of people. You give enough money. You, you do enough good deeds for somebody else. You, you serve somebody. You, you just take a meal to your neighbor. You're in good with God. And all those things are a sly seduction and no less hellish than the other lies. He's just going to try and seduce us and pull us away. But listen, anything that elevates us while diminishing God Anything that puts us up on a pedestal and brings God down is a bogus lie from the pit of hell. And we've got to avoid that. And we've got to be able to see that. And so, for us to be able to resist the temptation of Satan, for us to be able to expose his lies, for us to be able to resist his seduction, we've got to hold firmly to the truth of God's word and then submit every area of our lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. That means we got to get into God's word, we got to know it, and we got to submit to it, surrender to it. So that means when there's something that we come across, we say, man, I'm not sure I want to follow that part. Instead of dismissing God's word, instead of throwing it aside, we choose to align our lives and do the hard work to come into submission to Jesus. And when we don't, 
So we're marked by the wrong kinds of things. John continues in Revelation. It says, he, the beast, required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. Now let's just pause. Notice who he goes after. It's everyone. Everyone. And he doesn't care about distinctions. In fact, he likes to exploit those differences that we have. Small and great, get them to fight against each other. Rich and poor, get them to fight against each other. Free and slave, fight against each other. He'd just keep going with this. Male, female, fight against each other. Parent, child, fight against each other. Republican, Democrat, fight against each other. Any difference he can exploit and push us apart from each other, Satan is winning. Because God's design is for his people to be unified and come together, not to be pushed apart. And so we have this work of Satan pushing us apart. And then he gives us a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. We'll get to that in a moment. Woo, here we go. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here, you think? Mm-hmm, amen. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six, six. Six. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so what is this? The mark of the beast. Woo. All right. Undoubtedly, you have heard some different theories about this. And, you see, and I'm just going to be honest. There is a lot of really goofy stuff that has been done with this. With the mark of the beast and the number of the beast. And there's just some. And, and the problem sometimes is that we, we take a 21st century approach to what's going on in our world. And we try to understand it from right now. But that means we're taking scripture out of context. See, we got to understand it in the context in which it was written way back a couple thousand years ago from a Roman citizen who was a Christian to Roman Christian citizens. And when we understand it in that context, it makes a whole lot more sense and we can avoid a lot of the goofiness. So here's the first thing I want to let you know. I'm just going to give you some insight here. First thing is the number seven in that culture was seen as perfection. And repetition was the way to emphasize something. So the number 777 is a total perfect picture, right? It's, It's an expression of emphatic perfection, which then means that the number 666 is an emphatic expression of imperfection or failing or falling short. Now, another thing we need to understand is that there was this thing in that time called gematria. And gematria is just simply using letters as numbers. And we do that. Have you ever played one of those little code things with a little kid and the numbers are, are, or the letters are a number and so you gotta decipher the code a is one, B is two, C is three, D is four. You get the idea? Well, they did the same thing in the Hebrew language. It wasn't like a little game. They did that pretty regularly. So you could actually spell somebody's name with numbers. Now, that seems foreign to us. seems kind of weird. Maybe. My freshman year in college, my buddy Jason memorized all of his buddy's phone numbers using Chicago Bears players' jersey numbers. Why would you need to memorize? Because back in the day when I was in college, we didn't have smartphones that you could just talk to and say, hey, call Jason or call Fitz. You had to actually know a number. Our phones were tethered to walls. You had to punch numbers in. Some of you are going to have to Google that because you have no idea how hellish it was to live in the 90s with phones like that. I mean, you got these phones now. I'm telling you. So, Jay would remember people's numbers. My number, Walter Payton Mulligal. He knew my number. That's how he, he just factored it in. And we do this. We do this all the time still. Anybody who's a sports fan does this. We declare our allegiance, our fandom 
to a certain organization based on colors, orange and blue, based on symbols, go bears, based on numbers, 34, Walter Payton. We do that. We wear their names, their numbers around. We don't even have to have the name on the jersey. If it's got the right color, symbol, and number, people know who it is. So we do this. So when you spell out the name of the Emperor Nero at that time, guess what number you come up with? Six, six, six. Huh. Now, maybe John is also incorporating into this the idea that when you went and paid homage to the Roman emperor at one of those temples, that you would worship the emperor, then you would get a piece of paper, it would have the emperor's name on it, have a number on it, and that would allow you, it was your certificate that would allow you then to go to the market and buy and sell goods in the Roman market because you'd paid homage to the emperor. Maybe it was also the coinage they used that had the emperor's face on it, the name, the number, the same kind of thing. You had to pay homage to get that. Maybe it was the mark placed on the forehead of a slave in Roman times, demonstrating that they were the property of another. I think John is wise enough that he's good enough. He's so smart. He's incorporating all these things. But let me tell you what the actual mark of the beast is, what this whole number thing is. It's the anti-Shema. Now, the Shema... It is the central teaching of the Old Testament. For Jewish people, for the Jewish Christians, the Shema is like the central thing. If you were only going to learn one thing in Judaism, this is what you would learn. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you're given the Ten Commandments. And then you flip over to Deuteronomy 6. And immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments, this is what we have. And this is the Shema, this passage. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Seems like Jesus quoted that once or twice. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands. That's the Ten Commandments that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up. And every parent, every mom and mother today said, yes, you want your kid to learn something. That's what you do. Ooh, talk about it everywhere you go, every time, all day long, getting up, going to bed, going to the bathroom, getting food, when they're awake, when they're on the road. You always talk about it because you want them to learn it, and that's what they're getting at. And then notice this. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Hands and forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that is the central teaching. It's the Shema that you would Wear God's word on your body, on your head, and your hand. It's a practice that they then took literally and began doing this. Using these things called tefillin. I think we have a picture of it here. Tefillin also, some people refer to them as phylacteries. It's actually a tefillin. It's a leather box with scripture placed inside of it on parchment paper. So you have scripture placed inside this leather box. And you would wrap these leather straps around you and keep it on your hand or on your arm. That's so consider part of your hand from them. And then you'd also put one of these on your forehead. The mark of God on the forehead and on the hand. All this was was a symbol. A symbol that you were devoting all of your thoughts and all of your actions to God. That the whole of your life was offered to God. That's what this is symbolizing. It's the same symbol we see in Revelation 14.1. Revelation 14.1. I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with them, all the people of God. And they had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Same thing we look back in Revelation chapter 7. And the seal of God, the mark of God. 
And all that is, the seal of God is the Holy Spirit. I shouldn't say all that is. That's a pretty big deal, having the Holy Spirit in us. But the Holy Spirit marks us as believers. Decades before, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, and he expressed this same point. He said in Galatians 5, he says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. It marks your life in this way, that your life will be marked with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and things like these. We could add humility and sacrifice and service and generosity to the list. So that's the mark of God in our lives. If we follow Jesus, that will be the display of his mark on us, is that we will live with righteousness like that. So if that's what the mark of God is, then what's the mark of the beast? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not a vaccine. It's not a barcode tattooed on our hands. Not a microchip. The mark of the beast is the anti-shema. It's the opposite of the mark of the lamb, of the mark of the savior, of the mark of God. It's what we see Paul talking about immediately before the fruit of the spirit when he mentions this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the beastly nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, (gasps) outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. We would include rudeness, harshness, hostility, division, Gossip, cruelty, greed, on and on the list goes. That's the mark of the beast. You want some practical examples? The mark of the beast is when you doctor the stats and you fib to your boss to get ahead. The mark of the beast is when you disregard your spouse or your kids for your own pleasure. The mark of the beast is being on that group text of a guy who degrade women and use racial slurs and you don't say anything about it. The mark of the beast is resenting poor people and not being generous while we live large. The mark of the beast is when we allow fear to drive the way we see anybody who's different than us. The mark of the beast is any kind of emperor worship. The mark of the beast is when we defend our own rights at the expense of somebody else's. The mark of the beast is when we abuse sex or alcohol or food or exercise or entertainment or, Lord forbid, another person so that we can cope with the challenges and the difficulties and the stresses of life. The mark of the beast is when we destroy another person's reputation with gossip and we'll talk to everybody else about the person without ever having a conversation with the person. The mark of the beast is when we demand that other people repent of their sins and we justify and legitimize our own and refuse to look in the mirror. The mark of the beast is when we disregard God's word because alignment to it is difficult or uncomfortable. In short, the mark of the beast is any and every representation of beastly character. So God's word is pretty short and simple for us here. Don't be beastly. Which I think sums up what most mamas have told their kids from the very beginning. (laughs) Just don't be a little beast. And God echoes that through the ages. Don't be beastly. Follow me, he says. So we ask, hold up, hold up. That seems way too simple. Why wouldn't John just say all that? Why in the world wouldn't John just say, listen, I'm talking about Rome, and I got a vision, and God said, Rome's going to collapse, somebody else is going to take him over. Why didn't John just say, hey, Rome is evil, why... Because John is a particular person at a particular time under particular circumstances writing to particular people. He is a prisoner 
in a Roman prison island under Roman guard. And he's there because of his faith in Jesus. And he's writing to other people, to churches who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. And John knows that the Romans are going to look at it. He knows that before that letter leaves the island, it's going to get examined by the authorities. And if those guys knew what John was saying about Rome, do you think that message would have made it off? Do you think John ever would have made it off that island? John's doing the same thing that prisoners of war do throughout history. They use coded language that their other buddies can understand, and they speak in code back and forth. John was doing the exact same thing that we do when we communicate with our missionaries who serve in areas of the world that are hostile to the church, hostile to the faith. When we communicate with believers in North Korea, there are some, or Iraq, or Iran, or Syria, or Laos, or Myanmar, or China. We use coded language so that those authorities who might intercept and read it would think that maybe we're just talking about a get-together with the family when we're talking about things way more spiritual and significant than that. And I don't want to give away too much of the coded language because I'm going to keep our friends safe. But that's exactly what John was doing. So John's symbolic coded language makes total, complete sense given his circumstances. He's writing in code to not get in trouble and writing stuff that his buddies in those churches would understand right away. It's really not that hidden when we look at it that way. But we see this picture. The evil is still on the loose. Which begs the question for us, what does that mean for us as the church? And John answers that question twice in this passage. It means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying God's commands and maintaining our faith in Jesus. Church, I'm going to be honest, it's really hard for me to preach on that. It's really hard for me to talk about enduring persecution patiently. Because I have no clue. Because I have no clue what it was like for a Roman Christian to live under the thought of having their livelihood ripped away from them. The thought of being thrown in prison. The thought of being tortured for their faith. The thought of being killed for their faith. I have no clue what it's like for our brothers and sisters still to this day in all those places I just mentioned who are under that same thought. I have no clue what it's like for my fellow pastors who preach in those places who will preach under the thought of having their head cut off. I don't know what it looks like to endure that kind of persecution with patience. I do know that our brothers and sisters in those places say, don't pray for the persecution to end. Pray that we would endure because the persecution is what lends credibility to our message. Oh, for that kind of faith. But I can tell you this, that if you follow Jesus, you declare allegiance to him, your life will be marked. The evidence of the Holy Spirit will be shown in you with love and joy and peace and patience and things such as these. But you'll also get another mark. You'll get a target on you. Because the dragon is real and he still lurks and he's still out to get you. 
And so you will face, if you declare allegiance to Jesus, you will face challenges. It will cost you something. It will cost you socially. It will cost you relationally. It will cost you economically. It will cost you maybe physically. It might for some even cost you your life. So you got to declare today where your allegiance is. And you got to count the cost. But church, let me tell you, the cost of following Jesus is worth it because there's great reward of the hope that we have in Jesus, of the glory that we have in him. Paul wrote to the church years before this. To the church in Rome, the apostle Paul wrote, what we suffer now is not even worth being compared to the glory that God's gonna reveal to us later. And the early church knew this. These early believers knew it. They understood it. They knew that victory and hope are found only in Jesus. And anything else this world promises is counterfeit and fleeting and will cost us way more on the other side of the grave. This is why John could write of those early believers. They defeated the dragon by the blood of the lamb because Jesus wins, they win. And by their testimony in him, they win. And they did not love their lives. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Man, church, let me tell you, even if, even if it cost us everything on this side of the grave, the cost of not following Jesus is way more terrible and way more terrifying than we could ever imagine. It's worth the cost. Now, I'm going to invite you in a moment to stand and pray with me, and then we're going to sing of our allegiance to him. And I'm going to invite you like I have a few other times during this series to partake in the symbolism of revelation. Because we know when we lift hands high, it is a symbol of surrender. It's a symbol of surrender saying, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I need you, God. I need a Savior, and I'm not it. I need a leader, and I'm not it. And Jesus, you are. And if you've never declared that before, today is your day. Today is the day you declare your allegiance to him. And similarly, if you have, I'm gonna invite you to raise your hands high in victory because you know the victory you have in Jesus. That no matter what this world brings, it isn't even worth being compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven with him. So church, let's stand, let's pray. Let's raise those hands high and then let's sing. Jesus, I pray in this moment as we lift our hands high to you, God, that those who have surrendered to you, they would count the cost and they would know that the cost of following you is so much better than what it will cost them if they don't. And God, I pray that today, any who need to surrender to you would make that decision right now in this moment for your glory and for their own good. And God, to all of us who have, would we live lives that are marked by you, marked by your spirit, marked by love and joy and peace. God, that your spirit would just be all over us, that people would see us and they know, they know that there's something about us, that we follow the risen Savior. And God, I pray that you would empower your church, and that you would give us the courage to face whatever comes in this world, and that we would patiently endure whatever persecution we find, 
God, we pray for our brothers and sisters overseas who live with the very real threat of the reality of that verse, that they may lose their lives. And God, we pray, oh, we pray, God, that you would give us faith like them to endure all the way to the end, that we would not count our lives worth so much that we would shrink from death, but that we would enter full on into life with you. Oh, Jesus, we pray it in your name.